Great to see you, family. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Corey Bendix. I'm the pastor of Outreach and Evangelism here. So great to be with you. For those of you who have just gotten or, ordained, congratulations. It's an honor for me to be here. Um, and I just want to, just for a few minutes, I think um, the greatest gift that I think the scriptures can give to us in a moment like this is to give you all who have just gotten ordained a snapshot of our inexhaustible God. It's what I want to look at. Uh, we're about to start a new series for the eight, next eight weeks or so on Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Uh, what um, many have called the greatest chapter in all the Bible. And what we are going to see over the next eight weeks is that uh, our view of our God is going to get explosive. It's going to get enormous. That we're going to see God freshly. We're going to see ourselves a little smaller and our God a little bit bigger. And in a world that is isolating and minimizing the God of all creation, what we need now more than ever is a fresh dosage of who God is and who he is through his son. And so the next few weeks, uh, I really want to encourage you um, to participate in this moment. What we're going to find in Romans 8 is that there's no imperatives. What that means is that there's not one moment that Paul tells us something we have to go out and do. Everything is all indicatives, which means that God is going to tell us who he is in Christ Jesus. And that is really good news. And so what we're going to find is that, uh, that he starts with no condemnation, he ends with no separation, and in between he has a whole lot of no defeat. Amen. Isn't that good news? That this is what we're going to find in Romans chapter 8. And so uh, we want to encourage you, don't just... Just show up and, and kind of take notes, but we want you to begin to read this chapter. And when you are done reading Romans 8, read Romans 7. And when you're done with that, read Romans 6. And you know what? Just go ahead and read Romans 1 and all the way through. That you're going to find that this is a book that is going to come alive to you. So why Romans? Why, what is the purpose? Why, why is this so important? Well, it's timeless. Uh, one of my heroes, uh, St. Augustine, uh, he speaks fondly of the book of Romans. He was coming out of um, some, he was actually in the middle of a moment where he had gotten a woman pregnant and he was broken and he couldn't really understand a God who would love him right where he is and then simultaneously had the power to forgive him. And this is what he says about Romans. The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. Suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl. Pick up and read. Pick up and read. I took the book of the apostle. Uh, I opened it and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. Not in riots or drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. Romans 13, 13 and 14. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. This is the book of Romans. And what we find in the, in the big picture of this book is that it's a, it's a church that had been in existence for quite some, some time. According to Acts 18, uh, it, had been, um, it had been thriving. And then suddenly uh, the Roman 
Emperor Claudius, he dispels all Jews, those who were following Jesus, those who were naturally Jewish, and he gets rid of them. Five years, they're away, and then they're released to come back. And these Jews come back to the church that they had left, and it was much different than when they had left five years be- before. And so there was dissension, concern, tumult. There was a lot of confusion in this church about things like uh, disagreements uh, with practices for how they ate their meals, circumcision, kosher requirements. It was because of the division that Paul writes the letter, this beautiful uh, moment in time in 57 AD, he writes the book of Romans with the hope that this church, even in its challenges and its uh, current place of pain, it was limping to a certain degree, yet Paul had a vision for this church that it would now be the foundation by which all of Spain would be reached. So how is he going to respond to this church in Rome in the midst of their division? He gives the fullest explanation of the gospel that the New Testament has. Expounds on this beautiful gospel. Now, let's just pause. Let's have a definition of terms. Because I think when we think about gospel, we think of a lot of different things. But the term gospel, uh, it's, it's actually, it's an announcement. Often translated good news. When the Roman when an emperor, when he sent a proclamation around the empire declaring a victory or achievement, this was called a gospel. So what we have in the gospel is we have a declaration of achievement. And the person and work of Jesus Christ and him being king of all kings. And that all of us are underneath the banner of it is finished. That is the reality of the beautiful gospel that Paul is now talking about. He is going to now begin to layer in, but... What I want to make sure that when we think about gospel, we think of a lot of things that might be a little bit different than that. It's, it's a, a set of truths that we believe to enter into salvation. It's usually synonymous with evangelism. That it's, it can, more often than not, it's something that you enter into for the, to get into the kingdom, but it's that which you graduate from. And what we're going to find is Paul is not writing to non-believers. He's writing to believers. So what does that mean? That means that the gospel is as much for believers as it is for non-believers. And what we're going to find is that the, that the gospel is not a spoke on the wheel of a Christian life, but the gospel is the hub by which everything revolves around. For many years, my uh, mom would give me vitamin C and vitamin E for everything. I mean, everything. Mom, I dislocated my elbow. Here's some vitamin C. I mean, like her answer to everything was vitamin C with a chaser of vitamin E. I mean, here we go. And what we're going to find with Paul is that his answer to everything, everything, is the gospel. It is, it is the good news of a king who has come, entered into our reality. A king who, who now understands what we are navigating and has an answer, namely himself. That this is what Paul is going to talk about. And he's going to really, he's going to, he's going to make sure he massages it, this thing into every people group, every demographic, every situation 
They're going to receive this gospel. Uh, what, what we're going to find, too, is that the book has four main movements underneath the banner of a unified explanation of the gospel. Chapters 1 through 4, it reveals God's righteousness, what God accomplished for us in the gospel. Chapters 5 through 8 creates a new humanity, what God accomplished in us through the gospel. Chapters 9 through 11 fulfills God's promise to Israel. And chapters 12 through 16, it unifies that the gospel brings unity to the church. That Paul is desperate for this church to both understand and experience, to embrace and embody and express this gospel. So why don't you read with me in Romans chapter 7, verses 22-25. Just a few verses. This is going to be really a primer. Uh, I've got six minutes uh, before I'm supposed to be done. So this is a real primer of what we're going to consider in Romans chapter 8. But before you know Romans 8, you got to get a look at Romans 7. Romans 7 helps you understand the beauty and the transcendence that is Romans 8. But you can't see Romans 8 without really entering into Paul's, uh, his present tense, his current situation, uh, what he is, how, how he is currently experiencing his relationship with God. You cannot see Romans 8 without these verses I'm going to read. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin uh, at work within me. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. My wife and I were celebrating 20 years of marriage this year, and um, I know, I look like I'm 12. And we, I, I just kind of going back uh, over the last few years and kind of remembering some of the anniversary trips that we took. In five years, uh, we went to Bermuda, and just pro tip, if you got married, if you get married in December and you want to take a trip in December, don't go to Bermuda in December. It's like going to North Carolina. Uh, not good. Not a good choice. Uh, five years, Bermuda. Um, great. At 10 years, Pastor Brett gave my wife and I a couple of his points for Marriott, and we went to St. Thomas. St. Thomas. We've never been to St. Thomas before. I mean, this was the Good life. I mean, I'm with my wife. We're not with the kids. It's just awesome. So we're enjoying St. Thomas. And then, you know, we, we got some information about St. St. Thomas's better looking brother, St. John. I got some information about St. John. I'm like, you and me, we're going to St. John. So we, we get in this ferry first thing in the morning. We're in St. John at nine o'clock. We're knocking at this place where we get a Jeep for the day. From nine to six. Oh, yeah. Ten hours with a Jeep with my wife and a whole island to try to figure out, right? And so we get on this Jeep and we're going. And if you know me, I like to take risks occasionally, especially when I'm driving with somebody else's vehicle. And so I'm on this, I'm, I'm just going for it with this vehicle. Now, if you've been to St. John, it's got some clips and it's got some, there, there's, some there's some close calls if you're not careful. So we, we stop off at this spot. 
And we're talking to local, and they're like, you got to just take this road. Just, just take it. And we're like, what? No, just take the road. Well, can you, like, where does it go? Just, just take the road. You're going to like it. So we got on the road, and we started going. This was the most treacherous road I've ever been on in my life. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, there, there were moments where I thought, like, we were going to capsize. I mean, it was, it was like, we're bumping, and, and we're kind of going back and forth, and then there's, there's treacherous spots on the sides, and, like, this thing keeps going, and it goes downward, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, and then it ends. The road ends. And the road ends with nothing. It's just this road ends. And we get out of the Jeep and we're like, what has happened? Like we've been bamboozled by St. John people. And then we take 15 steps. And this is what we see. This is what we see. We see that. We see Trunk Bay. We... We didn't realize that this treacherous journey was leading us to the most beautiful destination we'd ever laid our eyes on in our entire life. It was, it was just spectacular. No one was within, I mean, no one was there. Just me, my wife, and this just scenery, just beauty, just clear water. It was the most treacherous journey led us to a place that we couldn't imagine. And all we had to do was just enjoy Romans 7 is giving us this treacherous journey that is leading us to a location that is going to open up to be the hope of the gospel. It is, uh, and I, I don't have much time to explain this, but there, this is one of the most um, highly controversial texts in the New Testament. I've got 10 minutes to explain it. So um, it is, it, it has several viewpoints on how, like, how is, like, like, you heard Paul talking. That is not the Paul that we really know. It's not the Paul that says, follow me as I follow Christ. So m many scholars, they look at that text and they're like, this has got to be Paul pre-Christian because this is not a faith victory. Like, we don't see that. Where's the victory here, Paul? Like, like we, we don't just, like, like, really, Paul? And then there's some that think that Paul's being dramatic. Some that think that he is, he is talking in the, in the perspective of a rabbi, because that's what rabbis would do. There's some that believe that he is talking in representation of Israel. But there's, a, there's, there's another option that, that from verses 7 to 13, he says the word I in the past tense. And then in verse 14, he pivots, he changes. And from verses 14 to 25, he says the word I in the present tense 22 times. That, that he says in verse 22 that I delight in God's law. I mean, is it possible for someone who isn't, who hasn't been saved by grace through faith to enjoy and to long for and to delight in God's law? Is that possible? I don't think that it is. So I believe that this is Paul talking about his present condition. This is Paul's life in regards to, to this journey of faith that he brings us into. Remember, this is the last years of his life, 10 years before he passes away. This is Paul in his mature state. This is Paul who's planted so many churches and writ 
He's, he's gotten a chance to write most of the New Testament. And he's bringing us into the journey of faith that he's on. And I, I have, I don't know about you, but these texts for me, these have been my lifeline for many years since I, was, since I first came to faith. That, that I, I read these and I felt like Paul was speaking directly to me. Like how does he know what I'm facing? How does he know the wrestling match in my soul? I came out of so much chaos. And, and I, I was, my, my heart and my mind and my life was rebelling against God. And I was doing crazy things. And I came out of that and I dove into the Bible. And I began to, to see this Jesus that is, that is so transcendent and so beautiful. Yet at the same time, he's asking me to do things that, that are really hard for me. And I, I, I was struggling with it. And then I read Paul. I read Paul, he talks about how he's no longer married to the law. He's now, he has union with Christ. That he has a relationship with Jesus that is so special. But like all married relationships, when you get married, within the first two weeks, you go, oh my goodness, what have, like, you, you see, not, it's not something wrong with them. It's now you see things in you that you never saw before. That, that now, as a result of being, having union with someone, you are awakened to you, and you don't like what you see. And this is what I was navigating, and I read Paul's words, and Paul's words were life for me. And I, 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 I find that as we, as we look at just, just for a few minutes, as we consider this, this moment where he brings us into his life, Martin Luther, the, uh, I mean, just, he, he is a, a ref, a, a, the, the father of faith, one of the founders of the church, reformer in the 1500s. This is what he says about, about both chapters 6 and 7. He, he says just a very uh, unique but important one-liner. This is what he says. Simul justus et peccator. So in chapter 6, Paul is talking about how we're slaves to righteousness. That we, have, that we were slaves to sin when we were born, but now we're slaves to a new king when we are reborn. That, that, that as a result of what Jesus has done, we are slaves to righteousness. There is, there is a cage of righteousness around us, and we cannot get out. Isn't that, a, isn't that good news? That, that, that because of what God has done, his righteousness has been extended to you and I, and it's an identity that we cannot change, we cannot lose it is God's commitment to now work on our behalf and to partner with us that now we have the hope of this identity of a slave of righteousness. But then at the same time in Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am. What Martin Luther says, it's simultaneously justified and sinner. Now, this is not what he's saying. That we don't have two identities before God. We have, we, we, we have one. You're either justified or you're sinner. But what happens when a person comes into faith in Jesus Christ is that they become justified. They, that nothing can shake that. Nothing can, trans, no, nothing can cause that to expire. And yet, the, the, the outworking of the Christian life is one where you discover sin that was in you that you didn't know existed. And that as you're walking through this journey of life, you're discovering you. And you don't like what you see. And this is Paul's story in this, this moment where he is, 
He is, he is waxing eloquent. He's bringing us into the chaos. And, and he begins with this moment of, he says, I have, I have now a union with Christ. I'm no longer married to the law. But then what he, what he begins to discover with us is that he talks about this thing of God's law. Well, what is God's law? All of God's word comes in two forms. God's demand, God's de- de- deliverance. God's demand is God's law. God's deliverance is God's gospel. So every time you see in the scriptures, do, it's law. Done is gospel. And so what you have in, in Paul is he's, is he's bringing us into this reality of, of now being awakened to, to this new master called Jesus. One who has now completely, uh, perf- perfectly embodied the law. Now he is uh, what the scriptures say, be holy as I'm holy. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? Well, who is that? That's Jesus. That's the one that Paul has now union with. And he's looking at this perfect law and he's looking at himself and going, I can't do it. The more he, the closer he got to, to the beauty of and the transcendence of Jesus, the more he looked in the mirror and went, I, I, can't, I don't have it. That, that what I love about Paul is, Paul is, is working so hard to lead us all to the law. The fact that, that God expects for you and I to be perfect as Jesus is perfect. And guess what? The result of that, the diagnosis of that is we can't be. Guess what the answer is? He was. So that's what Paul is saying in this moment. And then he collides us. He brings us to the hope of the gospel. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That the law demands everything but gives nothing. The gospel demands nothing but gives everything. The law accuses us, but the gospel acquits us. The law exposes us, but only the gospel can exonerate us. God's law diagnoses sinners. God's gospel delivers sinners. God's law reveals how quick we are to run from him. God's gospel reveals how fast he is to run to us. The law demands that we do it all. The gospel declares God paid it all. This is, this is the hope that Paul is now leading us into. That, that in Christ we have a demand. Like we live in a culture that says just do your best and God will take care of the rest. No one laughed. I think the reason you didn't laugh is because a lot of us actually think that's true. Just do your best and God will take care of the rest. And yet what we have in the gospel is one is that it is a demand. It is an expectation that God expects perfection. And we can't give it to him. And, and as a result of that, we see ourselves in a, in a nature that is now getting smaller and smaller. And that is the right posture because as we do that, God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I, I think I'm, I'm thankful for this because what this does is, it, is that Paul teaches us how to glorify God. And you, you want to know how you glorify God is... The same way you glorify a water fountain. You show up thirsty and you drink. You drink a lot. And you go back for seconds and thirds. You show up thirsty and you drink. And this is the, what you and I are, are, are made for is, is as we are navigating this Christian life that God in, in Christ sent his spirit to, to join us in the adventure. 
And, and every day as we, as, we, as we wake up, as we are doing everything we can to read our Bible, to live holy, yet there's this, this voice inside that says, man, I just I don't have what it takes. Can I just congratulate you? That is what Paul is saying. That what that does is that now drives us and it launches us into the hope of the gospel that is alive. It's, it awakens us and now it allows for us to begin to see as Paul sees, because what we're going to find in, in Romans 8, the entire chapter, is that we find that Paul's view of God is so extravagant. Why? Because he saw himself with such humility. Amen. That he saw himself small. So I th- for so long, I've thought that, that gospel growth is about getting stronger and smarter. And yet, what Paul teaches me is that gospel growth is about growing in humility growing in brokenness, growing in openness, growing in open-handedness. Close with this. This is from a book called The Present Power of the Death of Christ by a guy by the name of Paul Zoll. Who will deliver us? This is what he says. I'm a little like a duck hunter who's hunting with his friend in a wide open barren of land in southeastern Georgia. Far away on the horizon, he noticed a cloud of smoke. Soon he could hear the sound of crackling. A wind came up, and he realized the terrible truth. A brush fire was advancing his way. It was moving so fast that he had he and his friends could not outrun it. The hunter began to rifle through his pockets. Then he emptied all the contents of his knapsack. He soon found what he was looking for, a book of matches. To his friend's amazement, he pulled out a match and struck it. He lit a small fire around the two of them. Soon they were standing in a circle of blackened earth, waiting for the fire to come. They did not have wait, they, had, they did not have long to wait. They covered their mouths with their handkerchiefs and braced themselves. The furs came near and swept over them, but they were completely unhurt. They weren't even touched. Fire would not pass where fire had passed. The law is like the brush fire. I cannot escape it. But if I stand in the burnt over place where law has already burned its way through, then I will not be hurt. Not a hair of my head will be singed. The death of Christ is the burnt over place. There I huddle, hardly believing, yet relieved. I believe in the atonement. The law is powerless. Christ's death has disarmed it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just pause our, our hearts and we declare to you that we are weak. At times we, like Paul, are a walking contradiction, desperate. Yet, Lord, you, you long to come close to those whose hearts are turned to you who lead with humility, who lead with brokenness, who lead with the acknowledgement that I am not, but you are. Lord, you want to show yourself strong, to be an inexhaustible God. To us, as we we humble ourselves, as we declare our brokenness, and as we run wholeheartedly to the God of all creation, who has sent his Son to be 
payment of every sin, past, present, and future. Lord, we thank you for the months or the the weeks to come as we consider Romans 8. Will you allow for this moment here, Romans 7, to set us up to see you freshly in Romans 8. Lord, we we love you. We long for you. In your name we pray. Amen.